sin. So again, if you haven't already done so, please open up your Bibles to Jude, the little littler of Jude, just one chapter. I want you to think about something for a minute. People commit crimes because they think they're going to get away with it. And we like to think that they usually don't. But facts kind of speak the other way. Um, thanks to the police and our criminal justice system, imperfect as they are, most crimes, the majority of crimes, are solved. Criminal is, is found and dealt with. But according to the FBI's uh, uniform crime report data that was studied by a group called the Murder Accountability Project, Nearly 340,000 murders and non-negligent homicides, manslaughter, so those are the ones that are not by accident, um, 340,000 of those have gone unsolved since 1965, I think when they started keeping records or something. That's as far back as the database would go. Only 65% um, of all murders and non-negligent uh, manslaughters are, are solved. That's the national average. It varies a lot from state to state. Wyoming, in Wyoming, they, they solve 85% of these cases. Now keep in mind, in that time span from 1965 until 2021, when the database has all the data there, they did only have 1,000. Now it's still 1,000. That's bad. Right? But it's one of the lowest in our country. The police had a 1,000 murders and non-negligent manslaughter cases to solve. They solved 85% of them. Right? But in other states, for example, Illinois, what they call the clearance rate, that's when they solve a case, they call that case cleared. The clearance rate is 35%. But in fairness to the police, they did have almost 51,000 cases to deal with. And if you slice the data a little bit current, you know, take some of the historical data out and take more from like 2000 on, that clearance rate even goes further. And you're probably wondering, what is Ohio like? Ohio's at the average, about 66%, 65% of, of the cases in Ohio are solved. And that includes here in Medina County. Now there weren't very many murders, but the percentage rate is about the same. That, that means that, that there's like a lot of cases where the criminal is never brought to trial. They're, we never know who they are. They're, they escape. And, and that is, should be troubling to us. And you, and you begin to, to wonder uh, about our system. Maybe have a little, have a little doubts in our system. There's lots of reasons for this that I'm not going to get into in this little introduction. But, but I, what, I want, what I want to do is tie this into Jude. So these criminals that think they're going to get away with a crime are a lot like false teachers and pseudo-Christians. They think they're going to get away with it. They look at the criminal justice system percentage-wise, and the criminals tend to think, you know, I'm, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be the guy that got away. Right? And so... They just go ahead and commit the crime and they do all they can do to try to get away. Right? And some of them do get away. But false teachers also have a tendency to think like way. They think, you know, I'm going to get away. 
And, and they may not even actually believe in God, or if they do believe in God, they believe in God like the demons believe in God, which is not a saving faith. But these false teachers think they're not going to get caught. But we um, need to see from the book of Jude that they are going to get caught. These false teachers are, are, have snuck in among us, Jude says. They're here. They look like Christians. They even sound like Christians to a certain extent. They do the things Christians do. They do enough to be like chameleons that blend in among us. We'll see later in Jude, there's going to be some things that expose them. We actually already touched on some of those regarding their behavior and their doctrine. Um, but but they, the point is they have not been born again, but they've snuck in among us. And like spiritual, like, like, the, uh, uh, like spiritual jihadists, they've snuck in among us and they can do a lot of damage like Islamic terrorists can do when they sneak in amongst the crowd and then either uh, you know, blow themselves up or just kill a bunch in the process because they look like one of us. They look harmless, but they cause great damage. You know, false teachers uh, do not wear flags. They do not wear uh, uniforms that say, follow me to your destruction. But they creep in slowly. They work deceptively. And they slowly lead people away from the truth. Much like you know, to cook a lobster, a live lobster, you've got to, to turn the temperature up very slowly until it's too late. Right? That, that's the tactics of these teachers. Now, as a believer, you might be wondering, well, why does God, if they're so devastating, why does God leave them here? Why does God um, not just go ahead and judge them? And Jude doesn't deal with that delay part. What we have to do is trust the Lord's providence. What Jude wants us to understand is that 100% of the false teachers are going to face judgment. 100%. God clears all his cases. There, there will be none that will be unsolved. There will be no spiritual criminals that get away. 100%. And Jude wants us to know that in the context of contending for the faith. And he's going to talk about how despicable they are with some of their behavior in the verses that, that follow the, the verses we're looking at today. But today, he just wants us to see the fact that they are going to be judged. They're not going to get away with the things that they think they're going to get away with. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Jude and looking at specifically in verses 5, 6, and 7. So without further ado, let's just read that together. Jude, beginning at verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality, Went and went after strange flesh, flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So in, in these three verses, Jude provides us three vivid examples of God's catastrophic judgment against those who don't believe his word. And Jude gives us these to encourage us to continue to contend for the faith, to not grow weary in doing what is what is right. He also writes to, to help those who might be wavering, 
who in the face of persecution or the face of temptation might be wavering with whether they hold fast to the word of God or not. And Jude also writes in, a, in an indirect way because he writes to the church and the church is full um, of, of believers, but it also has some unbelievers mixed in among them. He also writes this kind of as an indirect warning to those who have not clung to the truth of Christ, who are, who are disbelieving God's word today, to warn them of the judgment that is to come. So these are Jude's purposes for writing this particular text. These three vivid examples are, are, were well known to Jude's readers, and, and we're going to dig into them. But you see what the examples are. They fall out very uh, easily. Verse 5, you have Israel. Verse 6, the angels. Verse 7, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities around them. So we're just going to take them, take them in that order. So first of all, Jude wants you to remember the Jews. Remember the Jews who were saved but subsequently destroyed. Now look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, uh, that, that the Lord, or that Jesus, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So the first thing he sets out to do is just to give a little disclaimer. He says, You know all these things. When he says all things, he doesn't mean that in a universal sense. They didn't know all things. Jude didn't know all things. What, he, what he's saying is, he's telling his readers, he's reminding them, you know these things, I'm simply going to remind you of them. What, all things meaning the, 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 the three examples that he's going to give from history that, that his readers would have known about. They would have known about it. They were familiar with the Old Testament. All three of these examples come from the Old Testament. They were familiar with that. So he didn't have to give a lot of details. He just had to remind them. All right, we'll have to dig into some of the details because we're not as familiar in many cases with the Old Testament. So he says, I write to remind you. Right? Now, it's interesting that the NASB says, in verse 5, the New American Standard Bible, 95, says, I, I now desire to remind you that you know all things once for all, that the Lord. And many translations follow that. But the Legacy Standard Bible says Jesus, where it has the Lord, has Jesus. And actually, the Greek manuscripts, if you look at the, if you study all the Greek manuscripts that we have, the, uh, you look at ones that are older, ones that are known to be more reliable than other ones, the evidence is split almost 50-50 between Lord and Jesus. And so it's a, it is a difficult decision. Um, Bruce Metzger, who is one of the scholars that helped pull together, they look at, at Greek manuscripts and they pull these together to give us a, a Greek New Testament. He said, he said this about this text. He said, Jesus, the, that is the word Jesus, the Greek word Jesus being there, is the best attested reading among the Greek and versional witnesses. It's the best attested. So why do some versions go away from that? Well, a lot of people have trouble attributing um, the work that's being done in this particular passage, which is the work of judgment, to uh, the human name of Jesus. Notice it's not Jesus Christ. It's just Jesus. It's simply Jesus. So the, the manuscript evidence shows us that it's either Lord. By the way, it's not the Lord. That's an addition. It's either Lord or Jesus in one of those cases. Now, obviously, it is speaking about the Lord. And uh, so as you look at a, if you have a Legacy Standard Bible or a New American Standard Bible, you can see that difference. The, the net effect of this 
is to realize that whether you name him as Jesus or you name him as Lord, the text shows us that Jesus is leading the effort to judge, which is which is something that we know from, from his teachings that he said, the Father has given me the authority to judge. But that authority isn't just a future judgment because these judgments happened in the past. So what I want you to see as we walk through these three examples to note that, that our Lord, the third person of the Trinity, led the judgment of these three examples of, of those who are involved in there, the Jewish Old Testament um, the Jews in the Old Testament, the, the angels, and then also Sodom and Gomorrah. And that that's, that's, is something that helps you see that, that we can't simply divide like God into like, well, you have the Father who, who judges sin, and that's in the Old Testament. And then you go to the New Testament, you have the Jesus who loves. Right? Those are one and the same. Right? One God. Three persons, one God. So it, it, it affirms the fact that Jesus is going to be the one judging. Uh, what is the action that's going on? Look, look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Now I, I desire to remind you that though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, or that Jesus, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now here, here Jude is thinking of of God's rescuing the Jewish people from the land of Egypt, an account we find in Exodus 7. Uh, the, the passages in, in Exodus, beginning at, verse, I mean, sorry, beginning at chapter 7, record for us the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt in order to bring his people out of Israel. Uh, God used these plagues to convince Egypt to let the Israelites go. Okay? But these, all the plagues culminate in the last plague. They're all bad. But the last plague, the tenth plague, is particularly noteworthy. It was the death of the firstborn. And unlike the other plagues, this plague could affect the Israelites. You know, the other plagues, God just brought on them. And Israel really didn't have to do anything. You know, whether it was darkness, there was light in the land of, of Goshen where the, where the Israelites were at. The Israelites didn't suffer all the plagues that, that the Egyptians did. But this plague, they would suffer unless they did one thing or follow a string of things. And that was to take a one-year-old male uh, sheep or goat and sacrifice that sheep or goat and, and eat it, uh, roast it and eat it with bitter herbs and then take some of the blood of that animal and put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. The lintel's the, the piece over the door. And when the destroyer would come, he would see the blood and pass over that. And all that is in Exodus 12. If you want to write that down, look at it, look at it later. Exodus 12. Um, in Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13 says this, and this is, this is God speaking. And I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. I will see the blood and I will pass over you. And there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And Exodus 12 
shows us how the Israelites responded. In verse 27, the end of verse 27 says, The people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so. Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. The emphasis here is they believed God's word and they obeyed it. And God was faithful to his word and rescued them. Not a single Israelite, not a single Jew uh, experienced the kind of death that was experienced by the Egyptians that night. And God brought them out. Exodus, uh, the end of Exodus chapter 12 gives us a summary statement of what God did. I'll just read that to you. Exodus 12 verses 20, I'm sorry, 40 and 42. And um, now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it happened at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the host of Yahweh went up out of the land of Egypt. It is a night to be kept for Yahweh for having brought them out from the land of Egypt, this night is for Yahweh to be kept by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. So Jude is referring to this to this wonderful rescue, right? So all of this, and, and by the way, this very rescue by God is what God institutes in the Passover meal that the Israelites were to continually observe and ultimately is fulfilled in Christ Jesus himself being the Lamb of God who was sacrificed on our behalf so that we would not experience the wrath of God. But that's not the end of the story for Jude. Jude is not focusing on necessarily the rescue. He's mentioning the rescue to, to, to reveal something ha- that happened later. And that is this. They were subsequently destroyed. Those who were rescued were subsequently destroyed. That's what, that's what James is highlighting there in in the end of verse 5. Those the Lord rescued, he later destroyed. And he tells us why. He destroyed those who did not believe. Who did not believe. Now some scholars who see Jude written at a much later date than I would hold to, try to attribute this comment of the Lord's destruction upon the Jews to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But, But that's... That is, uh, that's like, as I said, Jesus, that's bringing something into the text that isn't there. You would never get that from the text. What is he talking about? Jude is contrasting the consequences of belief, which for the Jews meant they were rescued out of Egypt, and the consequences of disbelief, which is that you are destroyed. Right? That, that's the contrast that he's bringing in. Uh, and I think that... Uh, there's good evidence for, for believing that Jude was written before AD 70 because he doesn't mention like anything related that could be specifically related to that other than this, on this very debatable inference here. I don't think it's in the text, so we, we don't need to go there. The context is between those that God rescued out of Egypt because they believed his word and those who disbelieved God's word, those same people, Right? who later disbelieved and were judged. Um, now, what kind of, what, what instance of, of disbelief might Jude have in mind? There are actually quite a few of them. Right? It's kind of interesting that there's actually, there's 10 plagues, but there's also 10 specific incidences of disbelief that the Israelites go through. And like 
the ten plagues, so the tenth one being the culminating one, the tenth act of disobedience is really the culminating act of disobedience. And we see this in Numbers, and I'd like you to turn there. Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13. So this, understand, the, the Lord brought the Israelites through the wilderness after they came out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai, gave them his law, gave them instructions, and they kind of meandered to, to the threshold of the promised land. And where we are in, in Israel's history is they're right there on the verge of taking the land and they want to go send some spies into land. And then they actually do that. They send 12 spies, one for each tribe. And you, I think you know the story. If you read your Old Testament, the 10 of the spies bring back a bad report. Only two have a good report. So that's where we are kind of in, in history with that. Look, I'll just begin reading at verse uh, 35. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do all this evil. The congregation, sorry, I, I will do all... I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered to, together against me in this wilderness. They shall be destroyed and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation of grumble against him by bringing out a bad report. Am I sorry? I'm reading. I could tell by the chatter out there. You were confused. <laughs> I was confused. You were not. Right. Chapter 13, verse 30, um, really, chapter 13, sorry. So the spies, and chapter 13 covers the spies going into the land. Right? So where, where I want to pick up is in verse 25, not 35. That makes sense. Sorry about that. That was not an intentional test to see if you were listening. Right? So when they returned from spying out the land at the end of the 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, we went in into the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites and the Jesubites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they, so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone in, spying it out, and it is a land that devours its inhabitants. Notice how it's being exaggerated here. It devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. 
There we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So they exaggerate the difficulties because they're fearful. Ultimately, it's because they're not believing God's word. And look at verse 14. Sorry, chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Don't, don't blow by that too quickly. They wept. They went back to their tents, and they wept. They said, we've just come here to die. There's no future here. There's no future in the land. God's brought us out here to kill us. Not to give us the land. Verse 2. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Don't know who started it, but it spread to all of them. Spread like yeast, like gangrene. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and the whole congregation said to them, would we that would that we had died in the land of Egypt? At least we would have died full. We had food there. That's what they're saying. Or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to, to Egypt. What's that called? Mutiny. Mutiny. They just took a vote. Moses is out, Joshua's out, Caleb's out, they're going back. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly and the congregation of the sons of Israel, pleading with them, right? falling before God, but also pleading with the congregation to turn. Verse 6, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who spied out the land, they tore their clothes they knew that the Israelites had sinned gravely against God. So tearing your clothes was a, was a sign of contrition. It was a sign of, of repentance from sin. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give, us, and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people or of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So this just shows you that Caleb and Joshua pled with them. Moses and Aaron were praying. Right? But they were pleading with them. And, they, and you can see here that, that, it, that Caleb and Joshua weren't thinking it was by their own might. They're attributing it to God. If God has pleaded with us, he'll give us the land. Look what the response is. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Let that sink in. They were going to stone them. And that would be the end. They were going back. So I don't know how far they started to get into this process. Where they started gathering the stones. And then look what happens. It's so bad. Moses can't intervene. Aaron can't intervene. Joshua can't intervene. Caleb can't intervene. Who's left? God. Look at the end of, of verse 10. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to the sons of Israel. Right? The Shekinah glory. The one they were so fearful of. 
God revealed him, said, and said, enough. Stop this madness. Now, it doesn't say the Lord spoke right away to the sons of Israel and say that. So understand, that's what God's actions are saying, not his voice was saying. Stop this madness now. Verse 11, then God does speak. Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? See, the rebellion wasn't really against Moses and Aaron, was it? It was against God. And how long will they not believe in me? There's the indictment. They spurn him because they don't believe him. And he says, how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs that I performed in their midst? They have seen the signs. They've seen them all. And yet they will not believe. Here's God's judgment upon them. I will smite them with a pestilence and dispossess them. I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought up this people from their midst. And yet they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. And they heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he had promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have forget, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, and God always lives, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory my si- and my signs, which I have performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned, it, spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants to take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will also surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you have not come into the land which I swore to you, except Caleb the son. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to you, except Caleb the son of Jephnah and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. And they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses are in the wilderness, lie in the wilderness. 
According to the number of days you spied out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even forty years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do, all this evil, I, I, will, do, I will do to this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the man who Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. What a, what a devastating um, consequences there were to disbelief. So this is what Jude is talking about. And I had to go back and read it because to refresh it in our minds of what Jude is talking about. So those that he saved because they believed, yet later disbelieved God's word and were destroyed. Right? A whole generation. And and God's plan all along was was to do what he what he was the plan that he revealed. But initially he just kind of threatened to to Moses to kind of wipe them out. I'll build a nation out of you. And the Lord worked through Moses. Like, this isn't God changing his plan. Right? The, this is what's called an anthropomorphism. Where God is speaking to man. In a, in a human level. As a human reasoning. Here. And he, but the, the, the net result is the same. Instead of wiping out all those unfaithful adults. Right then. Right there. Right? He still wiped them out. But it took him 40 years. And their children, who they thought would become prey, um, were actually given given the land. And the result of this is actually what happened. We give, we're given that in Numbers 26, verses 30, uh, 63 and 65. These are those who numbered. These are those who were numbered by Moses. They took a, a census, and this is at the end of the forty years. And this is in Numbers 26, verses 63 and 65. Through 65. But among them, among these, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For Yahweh had said to them, Surely they will die in the wilderness. Not a man was left of them except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. And, and this example is, is reiterated in the Psalms. It's reiterated, reiterated in 1 Corinthians. We won't take time to go there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 13. And Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. This is an example we should not miss. Right? The scriptures teach the perseverance of the saints. Right? So don't, let, don't mix the, that with what I'm saying today. That is the right doctrine. And yet the saints who persevere are also the ones who continue to believe. So the Lord warns us of apostasy right? through this text. Right? So he's saying continue to believe. If you reach a place where you're disbelieving, and this wasn't, this wasn't um, uh, a momentary lapse as we see, it was a pattern, but it was the defining characteristic of the congregation of Israel. They disbelieved God's word and were judged by it. So the takeaway from this is what Jude wants us to take away from this is that God's judgment is certain. He knows the heart and he will judge every person who does not believe his word. But the good news is if you rescue, if you believe his word, he will rescue you for he is faithful. 
And we, we can rejoice in that. Well, let's look at the next example. So the Israelites are the first example of God's certain judgment. The angels are the second example of that. So go back to Jude, Jude chapter 6. We turn turning back and forth a, a number of times in our Bibles this morning, Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So Jude rallies an example of angels who were judged. What can we say about angels? First, let me say about angels is that they really do exist. Our modern world wants to deny that. um, But angels really exist. So angels are a creation of God. We don't know their exact number. But today there are good angels and there are bad angels. But they were all created good in the very beginning as part of God's creation. The, the prince of the power of the air, also known as Satan, led a revolt in heaven such that a third of the angels went with him. Whatever the number are, a third went, when, went with him. So the, the scriptures speak frequently of angels being good or bad or even demons. So all I have to say is that this is not the stuff of fairy tales. This is not um, hyperbole. Angels really exist, both good and bad. I mean, our world, who wants to deny so much, denies that fact. Okay? And just to give you a little hint of, of where the world is going, all these UFOs are, that, no, we're not talking about the the, uh, the toy balloons our president shot down, but we're, we're talking about real UFOs um, that people supposedly cite, those are whatever manifestations of the angelic realm that are, are coming about. And I would say evil demonic spirits. Don't let our world fool you that angels don't exist. They do exist. But, but look at what, what happened to these angels. Is there an example of, of judgment? And there are four indictments against these angels. Right? The first one is there, they did not keep their own domain. That is, God created them to reside in a certain domain and, and carry on certain ministries. So they're made for a certain task, but, but they chose not to do that. They did not keep their own domain. They did not follow God's word. You could say they did not believe God's word. Be another way to say that. That's the first indictment. The second indictment that we see there is um, that they abandoned their proper abode. And these, these first the first indictment, second indictment, they, they go together to show the ultimate rebellion. They abandoned their proper abode. There was a place they were to live. There was a task they were supposed to do. And they didn't believe God's word. They abandoned that place and they abandoned the role and task that God was given them. Now, up to this, up to this point, you could say that, that that would describe all of the evil angels. Right? And what we're going to see is that they're judged. That they're kept in eternal bonds. Right? So does that mean all evil angels are kept in eternal bonds? No. No, they're not. We'll see because the, the next two indictments help us to, to kind of refine, um, refine who these angels are. And their indictments are actually mixed in with the indictments against Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. Sorry, verse 7. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, 
are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now notice there at verse 7 where, where he says, um, in the same way as these. So Sodom and Gomorrah are charged with notorious crimes that we know fairly well. right? To, to charge Sodom and Gomorrah with gross immorality or going after strange flesh, that would not be new news to us. Right? But keep in mind, that's the charge against these angels because he, he says there, uh, Jude says there in verse 7, since they in the same way as these, see that pronoun these? These in verse 7 refers back to the angels of verse 6. Right? That's who he's referring to. So indict, the, these next two indictments show us that these angels did something that other angels, even other evil angels, did not do. Um, the the people are of Sodom and Gomorrah are charged with with the um, with offering this strange going after strange flesh there, and they're charged with having indulged in sins and in, in in sexual immorality. Now the indictment against the angels was that they they engaged in gross sexual immorality, and and the word that's used for sexual immorality. It says gross immorality in various texts or it's translated differently. But but the word that is used there is an intensified form. It's not just the regular word for sexual immorality, which is the Greek word pornea, from which we get pornography, right? So it's not the normal word for that. If it were, it would just, they would, they would have engaged in immorality. But it is an intensified form of the Greek word for pornea, which shows that they have really just given themselves over to it. Um, it is the idea that they are they are they indulge in it. It's not just like an accidental one-time immor- immorality. It's something that they've given themselves over to. That's the pattern of their life. So that that's what we're establishing here. And the, and the word that's used for sexual immorality to indulge in and and to give yourself to sexual immorality is one that care, covers all sorts of deviancies. It, whatever the human mind can conceive of in sexual deviancy, this word covers it all. It covers it all. So it's really anything outside of God's established boundaries for um, sex, and that is within the marriage between one man and one woman. So the, the indictment against these angels is that they engaged in gross sexual immorality. And also they went after strange flesh. And I like the like the translation with that. They went after strange flesh because it should jog a, a memory with something else. An incident in the Old Testament that talked about something strange that was done that God or offered that God um, end up judging, right? and and that is from the book of Leviticus with the issue of Nadab and Abihu and the strange fire that they offered before the Lord. Let me just read that to you. Leviticus ten verse eleven. I'll just read it and you can go look it up later. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans. These were the sons of Aaron, uh, obviously. And they took their respective fire pans and put fire in them. They, they were supposed to offer up sacrifices to God, but in God's specific way and from fire from the altar. Here it says, then they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. So we don't know exactly what this strange fire was, but the emphasis is it's 
that God didn't command it. They didn't believe God's word. They didn't treat him as holy. They, they didn't believe God's word. And they offered this strange fire. And Numbers twenty six sixty one says, but Nadab and Abihu died when they offered strange fire before Yahweh. Right? God judged them and, and took them out. So whatever the angels' uh, sexual immorality was, it, it, they went after strange flesh. In other words, something that God had not authorized. It was sexual deviancy that God had not authorized. Um, one, one commentator put it this way. He says, the departure from the laws of nature in the acts practiced, unquote. So these last two indictments help us to see that, that these angels were a specific group of angels. And this takes us uh, to Genesis 6. There's no other Old Testament passage that this could possibly refer to, but to Genesis chapter 6. So you can turn there in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and, or you can read it as I, or listen as I read it. It's kind of a puzzling text. Genesis 6, being at verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those who were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And obviously this sets things up for God's judgment in the flood. But this is a very unique case of angels marrying women and producing like a superhuman race. So we're not given a lot of details. People say, well, how has this happened? Was it angels possessing men? We're not given any of those details. And so it'd be impossible. I could speculate, but that's not really going to help you any. Just take the text at face value. In some way, these angels were able to cohabitate with women and produce an angelic human race that were mightier than others. But that wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't primarily the fact that there was this angelic human race that is now on earth. Right? It wasn't, there, I'm sorry, the, wasn't, the primary issue wasn't just that, that there was, they were strong, but because it was this angelic human race on the earth. Why do you think Satan would do something like these, these These demons that did this weren't doing that on their own. It was feeding their lust. Uh, they saw the daughters of men as beautiful, but it also filled a purpose of Satan. That purpose of Satan is this. Who was the Messiah to come from? The seed of man, fully man. So it's one of Satan's ploys was to so disrupt Right? the DNA within humanity, that they would, never, they would not be pure humanity. Right? So therefore, the Messiah could not come. Right? So again, that's an interpretation. The text doesn't specify that. But, but that's the significance of it. And God said, this is wrong. In Genesis, 
we're not, uh, sorry, Genesis doesn't tell us about the judgment at all of these angels. But Jude tells us of this. And he, he, he knows that because of the Holy Spirit working within him to give him that, that text, that passage. So the indictment of these angels is that they violated the boundaries that God has given them. He, they did not believe his word. And so go back to Jude and you see what happens to them. He has kept, and in the middle of the phrase of verse 6, he has kept. Who's the he? This is the Lord. This is Jesus. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. All of these angels. Their, their judgment is this. Um, he has put them in eternal bonds. And that is eternal bonds. That, and he describes it under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Peter says they're put in chains. Right? So these demons did something so horrendous in God's sight. God said, never will you be free to roam again. Right? And these demons are being held for the judgment of the great day. That is the, the day of the Lord yet to come. That judgment day when they will be judged in eternity. Right now they're just awaiting, um, awaiting their trial. But judgment is certain. Know that the judgment is certain for those who do not believe God's word. So Jude used an example of the Jews. He used an example of the angels. There's one more example that he uses in Jude chapter, I mean, Jude verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude uses the sin and doom of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of the certainty of judgment. Now these, the, their, their judgment is notorious. If you do a little search on Sodom in your Bible, Bible search app or your, get at your old handy, um, uh, some of your app tools to help you study the, the Bible, you, you, will, you will, a concordance or something like that, you will see that Sodom is used repeatedly in the scriptures as an example of God's judgment. So it's something really familiar to us. If it's not familiar, uh, then you can obviously go and, and read it. We'll read sections of it. But due to kind of a time issue, I, I'm not going to read it. But if you want to read it, go to Genesis uh, chapters 18 and 19. You can read it uh, there. So keep in mind, it's Sodom, it's Gomorrah, and cities in that valley. Why were these cities destroyed? They indulged in gross sexual immorality and went after strange flesh. The things we talked about, the angels, right? And their sin is so notorious that even today in, our, in many of our states and cities, there are still laws against their sin called sodomy laws, right? So they're not usually enforced, but sometimes they're still on the books, right? That's their sin. Don't let anybody... Um, deceive you into thinking that the sin of Sodom was inhospitality. Right? You'll hear, you could hear stretches like that. Right? Their sin was homosexuality. And that's very, very clear from the text of scripture in Genesis uh, 18 and 19. Genesis 13, 13 tells us God's assessment of Sodom and the surrounding cities. Genesis 13, 13, he says, Now the men of Sodom were evil and sinners exceedingly so against Yahweh. So it wasn't just they were sinning against each other. They were sinning against God in a major way. And God, God sent judgment day to that city. 
And it's interesting that, that in these cities, even today, there's nothing growing in that area. Other than like, okay, man has been able to, to re- reclaim some of that because of irrigation. But in general, these cities are still devastated today. So today, the areas of Sodom and Gomorrah in these cities are called the valleys of the Jordan. It's not the lush Jordan Valley like up above uh, or near the Sea of Galilee. Right? This is down in the area, the bottom of the area, the area that we know as the Dead Sea. It's just nothing there. Nothing will grow. Why do you think? But, but listen, listen to this. This is interesting. In Genesis thirteen ten, when Lot and Abraham are so big, they have to split ways. And Abraham said, Lot, you choose. Take first choice, wherever you want to go. In Genesis thirteen ten, then Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of Yahweh and the land of Egypt as you go to Zohar. And Zohar was the one city, one little village that God didn't destroy because Lot said, ah, it's too, it's too difficult to go up in the mountains. Can you just, this, this town is small. Can I go here for refuge? That's the only town in that area that wasn't destroyed by God. So this desolation of the Jordan Valley um, stands as a witness to us even today of God's pending judgment, his judgment for those who do not listen to his word. The Lord works in mysterious ways, but his judgment is plain and clear. It is coming. The Lord will bring judgment. That is certain. The fire that destroyed these cities was an earthly fire and that it burned things and then it went out. We don't see fire today in that, that area, although that area is, is destroyed even today. But don't be misunderstood. Don't, don't be confused by the statement, the eternal fire, the, the earth, the fire that came from heaven. And some, some would say that even there was, there's evidence of fire coming up from the earth to destroy those cities at the same time. But that destruction led to eternal consequences for everybody in the city. Right? All the, 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 that, all the people that died in that judgment, right? they were brought and they are currently now awaiting judgment, being held in a place of darkness, and even now in a place of, of torment, awaiting their destiny, their final judgment in hell, which Jesus describes as an eternal fire. That's the kind of punishment that's given there. That's, that's sobering. Something we shouldn't just blow over. Right? God judges sin. If you hear these things, don't harden yourself to them. Even as believers, don't let it go in one ear and out the other without thinking about, about people who are headed to eternal judgment. At, at the same time, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. And realize this, Jesus said it in, in Matthew. He says, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What city? The cities that saw all the miracles of, of the Lord and, and yet didn't respond. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah is not a tolerable example. It, it's not uh, pleasing at all. So Jude rallies these three examples together. 
And it's kind of interesting, if you compare what Jude writes with Second Peter, we see something very similar. I'll just read it to you, or you can turn there. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit, and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood on, on the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous, righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority. So Peter uses three examples. Jude uses three examples. There's only a slight difference. And you probably picked up on it. Um, it's interesting that Peter goes in like a chronological order. In his three examples. The three examples are in chronological order. But Jude doesn't do that. He doesn't follow that chronological order. Which is kind of evidence that Jude and Peter didn't copy. One didn't copy the other. What's the significance of of what Jude covers? He doesn't cover it chronologically like Peter. He covers it in the scope of humanity. Or the scope of creation we'll call it. Of all those that can rebel. You have the Israelites. He starts with them because they're God's beloved people. And yet, when they didn't believe, he destroyed them. So you have all the Jews. Secondly, you have angels who also rebelled. Right? Then, you, thirdly, you have the Gentiles. That's all the, of God's creation that, that could possibly rebel against him. Right? So you've got the Jews, you've got the Gentiles, you've got the angels. He's building his case. He's saying that no one escapes. No one's going to escape judgment. Not the angels, not disobedient Jews, and certainly not disobedient Gentiles. So again, remember why Jude is telling us this. There's a certainty of judgment coming. So it should help you as a believer to realize that that God is going to bring all of these spiritual criminals to justice. So you you could just rest easy in his work to do that. It should also encourage you to contend for the faith. Contending for the faith is is uh, something that we carry out to help others, but it's also something we do to our own soul. Right? Probably something I failed to mention up to now. But but this contending for the faith is something you should do for your own soul. Right? When people assault the word of God, when they tempt you not to to, when they tempt you to disbelieve God's word, you, you you preach the truth to yourself. You remind yourself of the truths. Of scripture, you remind yourself that no, although it looks like the ungodly are prospering for a time, especially with the false teachers, you know, some of them have uh, very nice homes, live lives of luxury as multi-millionaire millionaires, that some of that can can tempt people to to think, well, maybe maybe they are, maybe they are on the right way. Just understand, don't waver. Fix your mind on the truths of Scripture, no matter what others are trying to convince you to do and, and to pull you away from the Scriptures. Don't believe them. 
So just rest, rest at ease in the Lord. And I say rest at ease, I don't mean take a vacation. What I'm saying is contend for the faith, but know that you're ultimately going to be carried on the wings of the Lord. And we're going to see that at the end of Jude. Just look at the end of, of Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. It's all God. And yet God has not only ordained, ordained the end, he has also ordained the means by which to get to the end. And that is contending for the faith. God will bring judgment. You can rest in it. You can be sure of it. And there might be someone here this morning or someone that listens to the message later who might fit the category of a false teacher or a false Christian. Uh, know that your judgment is certain unless you turn away from your disbelief. The good news is that if you turn away from disbelief right, and you turn to Christ and you believe the word of Christ, right, you have faith in Jesus Christ, he will save you. What, what you've done doesn't disqualify you uh, from salvation, from Christ. It doesn't separate you from Christ. Disbelief separates you from Christ. But no matter what you've done, if you will turn to Christ, turn away from your disbelief and believe in Christ and believe in the word of Christ, you shall be saved. Jude, and I would say ultimately God wants us to know that there is a certainty of judgment that is coming. And that should impact how we live our daily lives as we live in light of that judgment, which is to come, which could come sooner than all of us think. We're to be ready for that. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we are thankful that you've given us your word. And as we think about a text like this, very sobering, somber text, we recognize that we would all we would all be headed to that judgment, the judgment of the great day. We all deserve the wrath of God and by birth and by choice, by actions. But you intervened by sending us a Messiah, a Savior, who is Jesus our Lord. And Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and being raised in newness of life and even now building your church. And Lord, you have instructed your church to contend for the faith. So please help us to be contenders. Help us to learn how to contend for the faith once for all, handed down to the saints. And Lord, just help us to be those who rescue or looking to rescue others who are headed into a Christless eternity, who are headed into a dark judgment. Oh, Lord God, just use us to encourage some who might be wavering, who aren't, who are sure one day, but not sure the next. Lord, just cause our faith to be steady and sure and contagious to spread to others. Lord, do you work in us through your word for the glory of Christ our Savior.